Right before Themistocles was kicked out of Athens, before he had to leave for 10 years, this play came out. It was called The Persians, and plays, as you've probably heard, were a big deal to the Greeks. This was like literature, propaganda, public announcements all rolled into one. This play, The Persians, it starts out with this choir of old men. This was pretty typical for plays back then. There was really only a few actors, initially two, later it got bumped up to three, and then these few actors were accompanied by this chorus. And in this play, the chorus is the opening scene. It's a bunch of old men, and they're singing about how they're waiting for the return of Xerxes. You see, they're supposed to be in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. And so the picture is that this is back in Susa, while Xerxes has taken his massive Persian army and gone and attacked the Greeks resulting in the battles of Thermopylae, Salamis, everything we've been talking about for the past couple episodes. So these men sing for a little bit, they're waiting for Xerxes, and then the mother of Xerxes shows up, and she's anxious. She's talking about how she's worried about the expedition, and she hopes that Xerxes will get back soon. And then the ghost of Xerxes' father appears, Darius, and he starts saying it was a terribly arrogant thing to do. By crossing the Hellespont into Greece, he has angered the gods, and now vengeance will be visited upon him. He says it's a terrible idea, and right after this, Xerxes finally shows back up. He walks into Susa, into his home capital in this play, and he's just tattered. Just exhausted, he looks awful, he's barely made it crawling back to the Persian capital. This play is about a thousand lines, and the last hundred or so are simply him lamenting his decision to go to Greece. This is his last scene. Right before he leaves the stage and the play ends, these are a couple of the last lines that he utters. He says, Weep. Weep their loss and lead me to my house. Answer my grief with grief and ill return of ill for ills. Yet once more raise that strain, lamenting my misfortunes, beat thy breast he goes on like this, telling everybody around him to mourn and weep, and then finishes up like this. And bathe thine eyes in tears, thus through the streets, solemn and slow, with sorrow lead my steps, lead me to my house, and wail the fate of Persia. In the end, it's our ideals, our values, that built America. From the crew of Apollo 8, Values that allowed us to forge a nation. To me, the flag has been more than just merely an inspiration. Good luck. I am not a perfect servant. I am a public servant. And God bless all of you. They have chosen to risk death rather than slavery. All of you on the good earth. And therein lies the road to war. This is History in the Making. I'm Rob Sims, and you're listening to Episode 11, The Groundwork of an Empire. This play came out in Athens eight years after the battles of Thermopylae, Salamis, Plataea. Athens was reveling in its newfound power, and they had plenty of reasons to. Between hitting the Persians in the sea and then driving the pirates out, thanks to Simon, the sea around them was free and open for trading, Trade was prospering like it had never before. This was such a big deal to have this area free and open for commerce. This wouldn't be seen again for 500 years. For two generations, the Athenians keep the ocean free and clear, 
And once this free trade situation falls apart, it takes 500 years for it to be restored. You might have heard of Pompey the Great before. He's somebody who fought Julius Caesar for control of Rome as it was making its transition into an empire. One of the reasons he was called the Great is because he cleared the pirates out of the Mediterranean. Now, granted, we're talking the whole Mediterranean here, but he also had the strength of Rome at his disposal. This was one of the reasons that he was called the Great is because of this feat, and it's something the Athenians managed to pull off 500 years before his time. The effect that this had on Athens was remarkable. Trade started rolling in, and it became the link to the West and the Near East and the Black Sea. It was this hub where everything flowed in and out. This wasn't the only source of wealth that they had, either. They also had the tribute from their allies, like we talked about last time, where everybody would pay into this common fund, but really, it was going in to strengthen Athens. You see, the choice was given to the allies that they could either pay in ships and men, or they could pay in money. And most of these allies, for one reason or another, wanted to pay the money. They wanted to stay home. This means they didn't have to go out and fight, send the Athenians a check, and then you don't have to go roaming around the sea yourself. They also had the income from the silver mines. The mines that we've talked about before, the mines that this giant silver vein was opened up in 483, and it allowed them to build 200 ships. This mine is still active. They're still pulling silver out of it. They're using it to mint coins. And it's such a big operation. There are 20,000 slaves working these mines. And unlike a lot of the other numbers that we're forced to confront on this podcast, this is not an inflation. This is the best guess that we're dealing with. 20,000 slaves working in 10-hour shifts around the clock. This was a busy operation, and plenty of people got rich off of it. Athens owned the land where the mine was. They owned the mine itself. And then what they would do is they would lease out the rights to mine. And then they would also get a share of the profits that came out of it, a share of the silver. A lot of people got rich here. Not only the city, but something else you could do is that you could buy a bunch of slaves and then rent them out for a few bucks a day. One slave you could rent out for maybe 2 or $3 a day. It's tough to change this stuff into modern day currency. But if you had enough slaves and you could rent them out, you were going to make a fortune. A lot of the richest men in Athens made some of their money this way. They'd buy a big group of slaves, and each slave would get them a few dollars a day. So Athens was pulling in money from trade. It was pulling in from tribute from the allies, income from the silver mine, and then a bunch of other various fees. They had rents that would be paid to them from public lands. There were court fees and fines and confiscations from the very busy courts of Athens, which we'll get into next episode. And then there were also payments that foreigners would pay to Athens simply for the right to stay there. Now compare this to Sparta. Sparta didn't even have a tax system, which kind of makes sense if you think about it. If everything is being built and provided for in the city and everybody's sharing with each other, there's really no need to have a tax system. Everything is being made locally. It was actually illegal to work for an income at all in Sparta. So they had nothing to tax. The problem with this system, though, is that it makes it really difficult to finance your wars, or anything for that matter. Generally, the Spartans didn't have to worry about food. They actually owned one of the most fertile areas of Greece. 
But let's say that they're out on campaign. Let's say their soldiers are out fighting, and let's say they run out of food. Well, they can always just go take it over from somebody, but if that's not an option or it's not beneficial for them, they can't just buy it. What are they going to do? Even trading had some difficulties. I mean, they're Spartans, and so they have their Spartan culture, and they're not going to want to acquire a lot of wealth in the first place. But on top of this, just to ensure that system sticks, the currency in Sparta are basically these big metal sticks. Think pieces of rebar that you have to carry around with you. The money was intentionally made heavy and awkward so that no one could acquire a great amount of them. I kind of picture this Charlie Chaplin remake film where he goes to Sparta and he wants to buy a sandwich or something, but he has to get loose change, and so he carries around giant iron bars of rebar, kind of doing his shuffle walk the whole time. It's a disaster. It doesn't work. It's fit for a Charlie Chaplin movie. You can compare this to Athens, where all that silver they're pulling out of the ground, they're minting into coins. Now, this is nothing new, but what was very different about the Athenian coinage is that it was 98% pure. In a lot of the other city-states, empires, it was very common for people to take their coins, for the government to take their coins, and cut them. So instead of being 90% pure or 50% pure, it might be 20% pure. It's intrinsically worth much less. And so when somebody shows up in another area with a bag of Athenian money looking to trade, they have a distinct advantage. This Athenian currency even supplants some of the other local currencies used. Around 500 years after this, Cicero, one of the greatest statesmen in Rome, would say that the sinews of war are infinite money. And the person that was supplying plenty of war and plenty of money in Athens was Simon. The money he was pulling back into Athens was one of the other major sources of income for the city. And these victories that he was having weren't just the same thing over and over again. He wouldn't just go fight the Persians and return. They were innovative. He was usually outnumbered. He usually had to pull some type of tactical sleight of hand, but he nearly always won. At one point, he hears about this fleet of Persians in modern-day Turkey waiting for reinforcements. And he wants to make sure that not only do the Persians stay out of the Aegean Sea, but they're scared to even come close to it. And so he sails over there and meets them. He's outnumbered, like always, but when he finds them, they're in the mouth of this river. They briefly engage, and the Persians turn around, land their ships, and the rest of the navy jumps out and runs up to where these hoplites are standing, kind of reserve Persian troops up on the shore. But Simon, instead of turning his fleet around, he turns back to these Persians, lands on the beaches, everyone jumps out, and they run up the beach and bring battle to the Persians. It's a hard, long fight, but they defeat the Persians, and then they get back in their ships sail north for a while, and go beat the reinforcements that the initial fleet was waiting on. Simon took these long, fast ships that Themistocles built and expanded them. He built out like walks and bridges so that you could board other ships easier. He turned these into fighting ships, not just the dangerous guided missiles that they already were. Now the soldiers could engage in full force as well. The other thing that made Simon so valuable is that not only did he know how to achieve victory and beat the enemy, 
but he also knew how to take advantage of that victory. Right after one of these battles, he takes all the captives, the Persians, and he's with his Greeks, all the allies are together, and before them are all the Persians, and it's up to Simon to divide the spoils of war. But much like the system you might have used when you were five years old, the system that Simon is going to use is that he's going to make the division, he's going to draw the line between where all the Persian spoils get divided, but then the Greek allies get to pick the half they want. And so Simon goes up to these Persian captives, and he takes all their gold, their bracelets, their jewelry, he takes their purple robes, and he puts them all in one stack, this giant pile of purple cloth and gold jewelry. And then he takes all these Persians and puts them on the other side. And these are likely nobles, people who are pretty well off, not people who are really strong and fit for labor, so they wouldn't even make good slaves. These are just worn out bodies. And so then he turns back to the Athenian allies, the rest of the Greeks, and says, make your choice. Which one do you want? For the Greek allies, this is an easy choice. They take the wealth. They take the pile of gold, the piles of purple togas, and they turn around and leave. And everybody's kind of ticked at Simon. All the Athenians are thinking, what did you do this for? You just gypped us out of all that money. But then Simon takes all these noble people, all these well-to-do rich folk, and ransoms them back to Persia. He makes so much money off of this ransom, it's enough to provision and pay his entire fleet for four months and send money back to Athens. Simon was very happy with this arrangement, not only because he was becoming very wealthy and making Athens very wealthy, but because he realized that this situation was extremely beneficial to Athens. While everybody else, all the allies, were back home paying the Athenians, they were getting soft. They weren't gaining any experience. They weren't learning how to sail and row and fight at sea. Meanwhile, the Athenians were becoming veterans. They were becoming better and better at what they were doing. And Simon realized that with every day that passed, Athens was gaining a distinct military advantage. He wasn't only a big military leader, though. When he was back in Athens, he was active politically. But despite how kind he was to the people in Athens, often handing out money, giving free dinners, handing out clothes, he didn't try to further the democratic principles. He would often try to temper them. He had really picked up the mantle from Aristides. He had become the aristocratic representation. At first, we know that Aristides helped him with this. Maybe used him initially as that foil against the Mystocles, and then later groomed him, perhaps? It's kind of hard to look for information here. Because something just terrible happens, Aristides dies. And we really don't know why. There are some stories that say he was out on a journey and it went poorly. Uh, he was doing public service and he died doing that. Maybe he died of old age. Frankly, we, we really don't know what happened to Aristides. And it's a solid bummer. What we do know, though, is that he was remembered well. As you could probably expect, his daughters were married at public expense, his son was given silver and vineyards to take care of, and one of his daughters was actually given a stipend at public expense. This was something that they would normally do for Olympic victors. By the way they honored Aristides' family, I think it's safe to say that they remembered him well, but... 
we don't know what happened to him. A few other people, though, we are able to keep tabs on. If you remember Pausinius, you'll know that he was the Spartan general that went up to Byzantium, made a couple excellent victories against the Persians, but then started to assimilate to their culture. As he took on more and more customs of the Persians, people began to talk about him, and it was eventually suspected that he was actually in league with the Persians, that he was trying to go over to their side, trying to convince them to come back and take Greece. When rumors of this got back to Sparta, Sparta recalled him, and he left, but he didn't come back to Sparta. You see, this whole time, he was hiding out in another town. But when rumors got back to the Spartans that he was still sending letters to Persia, trying to get Xerxes to back him in an expedition, they sent a regent to go gather him. This regent had word that he would meet Pausinius, and when he saw Pausinius, he was supposed to tell him that either you come with me, or you're declared a public enemy. When he delivered this message, Pausinius didn't want any suspicion to be cast on him. Remember the motif from last episode where mothers would hear of their sons doing poor things in foreign lands and tell them to either rid themselves of the rumors or rid themselves of their life. It's not difficult to imagine why Pausinius came back. But when he came back, the ephors, the people in charge at Sparta, promptly arrested him. These ephors were the governing body in Sparta. There was only five of them, but they had the most political power, even more than the kings. They were there to keep the kings in check. So when Pausinius showed up, they threw him in jail. The thing was, though, is that these ephors, they didn't want to convict him too early. They knew he was part of the royal family, and he was even a stand-in king for the younger son of Leonidas. And so they couldn't get anything to stick to him. They weren't satisfied with the evidence that was brought to him. And so they released him after a little bit. Pausinius left, and he was very adamant to clear his name. He would walk around Sparta telling everybody that if you have a problem, if you don't believe me, bring trial against me, and we can go to court over this, and I will prove my innocence there. But he continues his conspiracy. You see, these rumors are true. He is writing letters to Persia. He is trying to convince them to come back to Greece. And so the rumors get worse. Not only is he trying to get Persia to come over, but he's trying to start a revolt with the Helots. Helots, the big slave class in Sparta. And at first it's just a rumor, but eventually some of the Helots even come up and start telling the Spartan officials what Pausinius is up to. And it's still not enough to convince them. They need something absolutely bulletproof. Pausinius at this time is virtually untouchable. Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody's heard the rumors. The helots are coming forward. But the people in charge don't have enough evidence to convict them. The mistake that Pausinius makes is trusting the wrong person. One of his most trusted servants is supposed to converse with Pausinius, supposed to discuss this plan. And so what this trusted servant does is goes to the epores first. He rents out a hut, and this hut is divided so that it has a false wall in the middle of it. There's actually two chambers. And he hides the epores, these government officials, in one side, and then sits in the other side so that he's on the other side of the wall. The epores can hear what's going on, but nobody can see them. And then he waits for Pausinius to meet him. Pausinius comes in, 
and they start going over their plans to overthrow Sparta. The E-Force can hear everything, and finally they have the evidence they need. They're convinced that Pausinius really is in league with Persia and is committing a very active act of treachery. They let him leave the hut so that they can prepare his arrest. It's not until a few days after this that some of the Ephors are walking through the marketplace of Sparta. Pausinius is there too, and you kind of get this image like it's almost a scene in James Bond, where everyone's trying to tail each other, and everyone is suspicious of everybody else. Pausinius is walking through the market, and he can see the Ephors coming his way. And as they're coming his way, he's watching them, they're watching him, and he sees one of them give this sign. It's the sign to arrest him, and he recognizes it. He takes off running through the market, people go chasing him, he sprints through Sparta, running around, trying to get away from the Epors, and the closest thing is the temple. He dives into the temple where he seeks sanctuary. Remember, one of the common laws throughout Greece is that if you take sanctuary in a temple, you're protected. You can't be killed. But the E4s don't see this as a problem. When Pausinius dives into the temple, they don't bother to chase him in. They don't try to fight him. They don't even try to convince him to come out. They simply walk up to the door and seal it. They build a wall over the doors of the temple and seal Pausinius inside. It's a very Edgar Allan Poe kind of move. And so it's inside this temple that Pausinius starves to death. The fallout from the treachery of Pausinius is not just limited to him. It's not just limited to Sparta. When these letters are kicked up that implicate Pausinius going over to the Persian side, he's not the only one that's named. Themistocles is also named. There are rumors that he might have been interested in going over to the Persians as well. Maybe it was made up, but either way, just for safety a warrant is put out for his arrest. Now, Themistocles, you'll remember, has been ostracized. He was kicked out of the city of Athens for 10 years. He's welcome to come back after 10 years. And if you were to ask one of his rivals in the court, in public, why was Themistocles ostracized, they'd probably give you an answer, something along the lines of dishonoring the city. They'd probably mention the bribery he was convicted for. But if you asked one of his rivals in private over a drink, perhaps, they would probably tell you that really, when it came right down to it, Themistocles was just an irritating, self-important has-been who could barely fit his tunic over his giant head. So, for all of the above, he leaves. He went to Argos, and this kind of sends a bit of a signal, just like when Snowden took asylum in Russia, it was kind of easy to read into that for some people. At the same time, by Themistocles going to Argos... This is the sworn enemy of Sparta. He's still declaring his allegiance to Athens by taking shelter in Argos. And frankly, he had a pretty nice setup. This whole time when he was pulling in money through either campaigns or just straight up bribery that he was later implicated for, he's been stashing this money away not only in Athens, but in all these other little city-states. So when he's kicked out of Athens, it's not really that difficult for him to just go to one of these other city-states where he has a nice little nest egg and set up shop for a bit. The problem comes when these letters come out. He's implicated, the word is put out in Athens for his arrest, and people start to go get him in Argos. Word of this gets to him first, and so he's able to flee. 
First he goes to Corsaira, and then he goes to Hapyrus. Basically, he keeps jumping around all these other little city-states where he has either money or friends, or maybe somebody owes him a favor. But he starts to run out. You see, Athen wants him because he has a warrant for his arrest. Sparta wants him because, frankly, they've really come to dislike Themistocles over the years, as he's made Athens so powerful and then tricked Sparta while Athens was building a wall around its city. And then on top of Athens and Sparta wanting him, there's also just a price on his head. There are other people chasing him down, looking to drag him back to Athens for the reward. And so he eventually has to go to people he frankly just doesn't like very much. There's this guy named Admetus, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But he is the ruler of this city-state that's near the southern border of modern-day Albania, in the western part of Greece. And when Themistocles was at the height of his political influence in Athens, this ruler had come to him and asked for a favor, and Themistocles just shot him down right off the bat. So the guy was very angry at him, didn't want anything to do with Themistocles, but Themistocles had nowhere else to go. So Themistocles shows up, and he uses this ancient sign, really respected ritual, where he takes the son of this ruler and kneels down before the ruler on the hearth of his home which is supposed to be an unbreakable request for hospitality. So this guy gives it to him. Some people think that he really wanted to be on Themistocles' good side now, so he pre-orchestrated this. Long and short of it is that he's able to take shelter with this other ruler in the western part of Greece, and while he's hiding out there, he has someone else bring up his wife and family. He has them smuggled to him out of Athens while he can think up some other plan. He obviously can't go back to Athens. He's a wanted man, and so he has his family brought to him. The person that smuggles his family out of Athens to him is killed. Simon actually brings a trial to him, and this man is executed for helping Themistocles. Simon, though he's known for being very fair and just to his troops, also has a very clear line in the sand. Themistocles exists in a hundred different shades of gray. Simon is a pretty black and white kind of guy, and aiding the public enemies of Athens is not something that will win you favor with him. So Themistocles is back in southern Albania, for our purposes. His family's with him, and he realizes that he has run out of options. He has nowhere else to go in Greece. He tries at one point to arrange this favorable marriage between his family and another city-state to set up a more permanent alliance, but it falls through. He runs out of everything. He has nowhere else to go, and so he turns to the one place that he still might just have a friend. He boards a ship and sails east to Persia. Now, unfortunately, before we follow Themistocles across the ocean to Persia and Xerxes, we have to stay in Greece for just a little bit. You see, Greece, since it's in its golden age right now, it's on the edge of changing. It's evolving very rapidly, and so we need to take a glimpse at it right now to appreciate what it's about to become. Right now, the people of Athens are broken down into four pretty clear ranks. The first... The best are the citizens. They're the only ones that really have full rights to the legal system of Athens. And if you were lucky, you would be born a citizen. It could only come down through your father, so it was passed on through generations. 
This did mean, though, that a lot of the Athenians, especially the wealthy ones or the ones that were really ambitious, would take advantage of this by marrying rich foreign women. And then the kids that they had with these women would be Athenian citizens. But not all of these citizens were rich. First off, if you were born in Athens, first you just had to survive. Because for the first 10 days that you were born into a family, the father had the right to expose the child. If they didn't like them for some reason, if they thought they were weak or had some type of disfigurement, it was perfectly legal to leave your child out and they would die of exposure. Some people would often adopt these children. Sometimes people would take these children and then they would be brought up as slaves. But for the first 10 days, it was fair game. After the 10 days passed, though, you were given a name, you were welcome into the family, and you can no longer legally be exposed. You were part of the family. You were a citizen of Athens. But the wealth in Athens was divided, even amongst its citizens. There was the rich and there was the poor. Being a citizen didn't necessarily guarantee you an easy life. The divide between the rich and the poor, though, was much different than it is today. The richest in Athens was a guy named Callias. We'll get more into him later, and I might correct that pronunciation. But his modern-day fortune would be worth about $25, $30 million dollars which is nothing by most modern standards. Some of the richest men in the world have closer to 70 billion, 80 billion, somewhere in those numbers. One of the aristocrats that we'll get into quite a bit later in the season is one of the wealthiest men of Athens, and he only has 70 acres to his name. It's not a lot of land. But if you were a citizen, one of the things you could depend on was military service. You had military service from the time that you were 18 to 20. These youth of Athens would often be stationed out on the frontier to guard the borders of Attica. Once you were 20, you were considered a full citizen. Your training was over. You had all the rights and legal obligations, like standing in on a jury. Maybe you'd be drawn by lot and have some minor role in your local deem, your village, your neighborhood. And then by the time you were 30, you were eligible for the higher offices of Athens, such as Archon. So these are the citizens. They are the core of Athens. They are the voters, the people that are involved in the jury, in the legal system. And there's about 30 to 40,000 of them. Now, on the next rank, we have the metrics. These are folks who are not from Athens. They're not citizens. They're foreigners, usually, but they're welcome to stay in Athens as long as they pay a tax. The, this tax is actually called uh, sharing the home is the name of it, if you translate it from the Greek. But they're essentially the working middle class. A lot of the production value in Athens comes from this class. They would set up factories. And the way these factories worked in Athens is that you would buy a bunch of slaves, all make something, maybe shields or clothes. And they would usually be made to order if you could really produce a lot and things were really going hot. You could produce enough and then just bring the extra to the market. And then as trade begins to flourish in Athens, more and more of these factories begin to actually export out of Athens, out to the surrounding islands, maybe other Greek city-states, Egypt, the Black Sea, all over the Mediterranean. But these metrics, these foreigners, they would work alongside their slaves, there was less division between not only the rich and the poor, but also between those that were slaves and those that weren't. They would often work alongside each other in factories like this. But despite all their industry, 
They had no vote. They had no involvement in religious organizations. They had no ability to make direct appeals to the court in Athens. The Athenians were all about justice, but they were mainly about justice for the Athenians. Moving on down the list, we have freedmen. Now, these are prior slaves who have received their freedom, but have still stayed in Athens. Life for them could vary. Best case scenario, they might be able to run one of these factories, have a factory of their own, buy a couple slaves of their own, and start up shop. Worst case scenario, they would still just do the same work of a slave, but they would actually get paid for it, and they would receive all their earnings. Finally, the last case scenario, we have slaves. And it is difficult to emphasize just how massive of a population this was. Estimates vary, but there is safely 100,000 plus slaves in Athens, and life varies wildly for them. Athens actually got slaves to do a lot of the administrative work. So if you were a slave in Athens, you might actually be purchased by the government and essentially just be a clerk. You might actually be a policeman. They had slaves do some of the policing in the city. But life could also vary quite a bit. You might have a very cruel master, and although they couldn't kill you directly, they also did not have to treat you well. If the master was too harsh, you could try to run to a temple and take asylum there, and then the master would be forced to sell you. But your life was in no way in your own control. The worst case scenario for a slave was working in the silver mines of Athens. Now, we already mentioned what a massive operation this is in the previous episode. 20,000 slaves working in 10-hour shifts around the clock, but the conditions that they worked in were rough. These were tunnels that were only a few feet wide, and so you could barely even get around each other. You would stack up in these long columns, all likely laying down because usually there wouldn't be enough room to stand up, working in the mines, passing things down the rows, back and forth. If you needed to get by somebody, it was really difficult. You probably weren't chained up if you were good, and you never tried to run away and just sat there and did your shift patiently every day. If you tried to run away and you were caught, you'd be chained. If you actually ran away and were caught, you'd be brought back. You'd be branded on the forehead and then chained up. And then even if you weren't in the mines, the only way that your testimony could be accepted in court was if it was under torture. The idea is that you couldn't trust a slave to tell the truth because either due to their nature or just due to loyalty or fear of their master, they're going to lie. So the only way they would be allowed to testify in the courts of Athens was if some form of pain was applied to them. We all know what a terrible thing slavery is. It's not only the black mark on America, but really just the black mark on humanity as well. It's been done all over the world for the vast majority of humanity's history. And if we were to present this moral problem to the Athenians, they probably wouldn't even understand Slavery was seen more as a force of nature and fortune than morality. Blaming slavery on Athens might be kind of similar to blaming Athens for that storm that kicked up. Aristotle, one of the greatest thinkers of Greece, spends quite a bit of time defending slavery. So let's focus on something that might be a little more applicable to Athens in their own age, something that they might understand. You see, the problem with slavery as it concerned Athens is that all the cheap labor was taken. 
This meant that if you were poor, you couldn't just go and get a job at your local Athenian retail shop selling DVD players to people for $7.50 every hour, because that job would be taken by a slave. Either you had money or you didn't. Social mobility was very difficult because of this. You couldn't just find some small job and work your way up the ranks. Not only that, but because labor was so cheap, there was no need to invent the loom or the sawmill. Cheap labor was everywhere, so why make machinery? So from best case scenario to worst case scenario, this is the situation at Athens, and try to remember this, because things are about to change in the coming decades. No matter if you're a citizen, a metric, a freedman, or a slave, life is about to change in the coming decades. You see, Athens itself was changing. Athens was demanding on its allies that had set up these tributes that had to be paid to them, as people expected, as they had all agreed to. The problem was that when people missed payments, Athens approached this like a mob boss, almost. It was very demanding. It didn't stand for any of its allies being behind in its tribute. And a lot of the allies weren't used to this. Remember, they just fought a war to get rid of Persian tyranny, to live with the right not to pay tribute to anybody, and now they were all paying into this common fund that in theory was making all of them stronger. But in actuality, if you were somebody living in perhaps Naxos, a small island to the east of Athens, you might think that all this money is just going to Athens and only they are really benefiting from it. So Naxos rebels. They tell Athens that they're no longer paying any money, they're getting out of the league, and from now on, Naxos is going to be independent. The problem with this is that the past several years, everybody's been paying Athens, and so they haven't been raising navies of their own. Athens, meanwhile, has been sailing all around the area, defeating Persian fleets, landing on the shores, defeating Persians' armies. Simon's been leading them the whole time and is very aware of what's happening. Simon knows that while all these other city-states are sitting around, Athens is becoming battle-hardened. And so when Naxos rebels... It means it's a tiny island with no navy going up against the might of Athens with its veteran fleet. Doesn't stand a chance. Sure enough, Athens sails down there and puts Naxos under siege. There's a nice little side story here, by the way, where when Themistocles leaves Greece and is running to Persia, his ship is caught in a storm and the ship is blown down to Naxos, and he has to bribe the owner of the ship so that he can stay below and hide. But it works. He gets away, he's not discovered, and he keeps sailing east. But this problem kicks up again for Athens. A few years go by, and suddenly Thasos, an island to the northern part of the Aegean Sea, decides that it doesn't want to be in the Delian League either. Athens doesn't want to let it leave, and so they rebel. Thesos, however, has a navy, it has a force, and it meets Athens in the field. They battle, and Athens defeats them, and so Thesos is forced to run back to their city. Athens settles in for a siege, and it's a longer siege this time, which means that Thesos has time to send a message. They sent a message down to Sparta. This whole time, Sparta has been watching Athens become an economic powerhouse while also conquering new areas of Persia as well as defeating these rebellions in the Delian League. Sparta sees Athens 
is trying to expand itself, is trying to grow into something more than a city-state, perhaps taking control of the Delian League, perhaps turning it into an empire. The messengers from Thasos beg Sparta to go to war with Athens, and Sparta agrees. Sparta begins to secretly prepare for war with Athens. Thanks a lot for listening to History in the Making. Join me next episode where we introduce one of the people in Athens that is such a powerful statesman that he has an age named after him in the middle of the Golden Age. The democracy of Athens explodes. They begin reaching into areas they have never gone in before, supporting rebellions across the Mediterranean, and meanwhile building themselves up into what can only be recognized as an empire. We dive into all this and more and how it affects us today in the next episode of History in the Making. In the meantime, if you have any feedback for me, please send me an email, rob at HITM podcast. I would love to hear what you think of the show. And also, if you are enjoying it, please leave me a review on iTunes. That's the best way to promote the show. So if you've listened to History in the Making for a while now, you know that this is typically a bi-weekly show. Episode comes out every two weeks. And so you probably noticed that this one came out a little bit early. I wanted to get you guys something for the holidays, not only so you'll have something to listen to on your travels, but also I'm doing a bit of traveling myself. So I wanted to give you this episode early, and then in exchange, I'm going to be gone for the rest of December. And so I will be releasing the next episode of History in the Making on January 12th. Until then, maybe tell some friends and family about the show, but certainly... Have a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year, and I will talk to you next year.